Welcome to Living Hero. I'm Jari Chevalier, and today we present a conversation with recognized sex expert, keynote speaker, and author, Stella Resnick. Her book's title is The Pleasure Zone, Why We Resist Good Feelings and How to Let Go and Be Happy. Stella is a clinical psychologist in private practice in Beverly Hills, California, and currently serves on the faculty of the Santa Barbara Graduate Institute. She was formerly president of the Western Region of the Society for the Scientific Study of Sexuality and is now a diplomat of the American Board of Sexology. She has written numerous professional papers and is frequently quoted in popular magazines. She has written cover stories for Self, New Age, and Psychology Today. I am so pleased to present you with Stella Resnick. In the beginning of your book, you have this half-page opening to pleasure. And right there, you start out by saying, for thousands of years in cultures all over the world, pleasure has been disdained and demonized. If this is a worldview, where is it coming from? Why is this that pleasure is disdained and demonized? What is all the suspicion and the punishment around pleasure really all about? Well, at some point... uh being in paradise became more difficult for people, I, I gather, because what seems to have occurred, and Rhianne Eisler talks about this, the hordes of male-dominated, warlike people that came down during a period of, of upheaval on the earth and kind of took over the more peace-loving, matrilineal, uh, matriarchal societies that were more comfortable with pleasure and imposed the kind of control that was based on power and force and overpowering people. And I think at that point, what actually happened was that people had to restrain themselves. Now, it could be that it was Sodom and Gomorrah all over the place and that society needed to be structured and that there were perhaps more beneficent ways of structuring them. But along came a way of thinking, believing, that had to do with power and control. And I think what that has created is a suspiciousness about letting go. That a lot of times I will hear people say, that people who have withheld their sadness, their tears, so, so you could just see that they're full of tears inside, but it never comes out. And they'll say things like, I'm afraid that if I let myself cry, I'll cry forever. Mm-hmm. Or people who say, I'm afraid if I let myself get angry, I will kill. Or people who say, if I let myself feel my sexual pleasure, I'll just have sex with everything in sight. There's a lack of familiarity with being able to enjoy something and to still have restraint to still be able to contain the experience without blowing up with regard to it. So I think that's a big part of what's been handed down, a society that has been full of restraint uh, for Western society culminating in a peak of Victoriana, of Victorian England and Victorian United States and spread throughout uh, Europe more or less in, in different countries. And when Freud was looking at what made us tick, he was looking at Viennese society in the Victorian era, and he himself was schooled within a system of thought that was based on that era. So uh, although I think he's made some amazing observations and analyses, you know, even that uh, has some parts that are really old because we're continually growing here. We're continually learning something. So we're heading into a new phase, I think, of society. What a great kickoff to our conversation because there is so much in what you just said that we can start to unpack. Along the same lines, but digging a little deeper, you and many others who are out there promoting a healing track for humanity, you are talking about how stress and the hormones that are released in our body during periods of tension and stress 
lead to emotional reactivity, physical and mental illness, and a lot of unhappiness. Whereas learning how to unwind, to breathe, to relax, to work with ourselves and release the hormones that come from a more open state lead to responsiveness and health and fulfillment. But you are also teaching that this is difficult for us, that there's a fine line between excitement and fear, that people actually fear letting go and they fear intimacy and eros, expansiveness and pure being. So this is kind of an extension of the first question, but why would we be afraid of peace, fulfillment and pleasure? Well, I think uh, given our lack of familiarity with it, I think it's understandable. Because it's the unknown well, it's, it's not just the unknown. Uh, we're actually programmed in our nervous system to be cautious. Many of us came from less than ideal families. The people who were giving us love or protection were also scary people, punishing us, being irrational. We could even see that in our childhood. So uh, we learned to hold ourselves back from feeling as good as we could because we could be punished for it. This was what we learned as discipline. This was what we learned that we had to do in order to get along. And in many cases, clearly, people were unfulfilled in their needs, their needs for love, their needs for reassurance, their needs to be adventuresome rather than to be scared to explore. So under those circumstances, it's very understandable that people would be afraid to let go because they don't know. A lot of times people will say, if I'm not in control, I feel like I'm out of control. And indeed they are. Indeed they are. People who are unused to feeling at ease in their body are not comfortable with the sensations in their body that you have to be tense all the time. So it does take, at some level, a willingness to grow, more than a willingness, a desire, a need to do something different, and good teachers, good people to help, to support being in touch with, with one's true self. That's where the true self lies. You, and you mentioned Rian Eisler, I know you are colleagues, also uh, Don Beck, Ken Wilbur, many, many people who are taking a broad perspective on human development speak of the issues we've already gotten into in terms of human development. Can you share with us what you call the eight core pleasures and then perhaps explain how they follow the developmental process of a human being and possibly the development of a human society? Well, first of all, Rianne Eisler wrote the foreword to my book. I was thrilled that she was able to do that because she is the one who studied how we became resistant to pleasure, as did Wilhelm Reich, for example. So what my book basically does is it says, okay, now, given that we seem to need pleasure, there's a lot of data that shows that people who let themselves feel good, who relax, who are comfortable in their bodies, who enjoy many different ways of expressing their delight, that people like that tend to be more resistant to illness, even genetic illnesses where they're predisposed to a condition, that there's a lot of evidence that people who are recovering from illness recover a great deal faster if they have a view of a park and a tree rather than a brick wall from their hospital room. So there's a lot of evidence that pleasure is good for us. And yet, if we look at our backgrounds, most of us have learned to hold ourselves back from feeling as good as we can and to be suspicious of pleasure. And many of us grow up to be people who don't even give ourselves permission to relax and to have breathing space and to 
smell the roses and the morning coffee and to let themselves sing in the shower or to dance down the street. Yes, very inhibited and very defended and self-judging. Yes. So what I did, I actually spent 10 years researching. At first I started to just research pleasure and what Freud said and what Wilhelm Reich said and a lot of the bioenergetics people and uh, Fritz Perls and the Gestalt people and the science of pleasures and the different kinds of pleasures that conferred uh, immune boosts. And what I came up with, it seemed to me that I could easily categorize all the pleasures into a system of eight core pleasures, eight essential ways that we need to be fulfilled to give us maximum energy, confer maximum benefits on our immune system, and to feel good about ourselves. And what I saw was that these core pleasures seem to, to follow a developmental pattern from actually pre-birth, from pre-birth to birth and on as we grow. And so what I looked at is a common notion in psychology that birth is the first trauma, is the prototype of all later trauma. And there have been volumes written on the birth trauma. And I thought, well, if birth is the first trauma, then before that was the first pleasure. And what could that be? And I looked at what it is for a fetus to lie in a sack of warm water to get all of its needs. This is, of course, in the ideal state. Its needs met and all the waste taken out and uh, to be warm and to be close to this rhythmic heartbeat and to be safe. And then suddenly it's jarred from this place, this water bursts, and we're cast from Eden uh, into the jungle, as it were, of noise and sounds and, and people talking loudly, and at least we're a good part of our culture being slapped on the behind, first pain. So I, I looked at that and I said, okay, if the first pleasure is just doing nothing and having your needs met, then that's the pleasure of just being, just being. And I looked at how do we resist that pleasure of just being as adults. Uh, We resist that pleasure by feeling like we have to do something in order to be worthy, that we can't just sit and be, that we have to be doing. So that was the first pleasure, and that's what I saw as how we resist that. And then the second pleasure, of course, after birth is the pleasure of pain relief and ideally release uh, that it's no longer in your body. And as adults, how do we resist that? And we resist it by holding on to our pain, by thinking our pain is safer than our pleasure. Sometimes people hold on to being a victim of their childhood because they identify with their victimization. And who would they be if they weren't victims anymore? And the third core pleasure is the pleasure of what I call the elemental pleasures, basic roots. And that's play, humor, movement, and sound. And that categorizes our toddlerhood, our ability to explore, our ability to play, to pretend, to feel exhilaration in our body, uh, to run around, um, to scream and yell. And, of course, how do we resist that? I mean, we learn to sit still and stop fidgeting, and we learn not just to curb and channel our energies, but we learn to restrain ourselves. So then the fourth core pleasures are the mental pleasures, the pleasure of learning and good fantasies and making good pictures. Of course, how we learn to withhold that is negative thinking and uh, making negative pictures and bad fantasies and thinking that those fantasies are even more real than the good fantasies. And then the fifth core pleasure are the emotional pleasures, all the variations on the theme of love, liking and being interested and being curious and being excited and stimulated and happy-go-lucky and peaceful inside and contented and appreciative and grateful and secure. How do we inhibit those is, um, you know, we think that if we're not thinking about all the bad things that will happen that uh, we won't be able to rely on ourselves to deal with them if any of them should happen to come to pass. 
like paying interest on a debt you haven't taken out. Mm-hmm. You know, you're anticipating all the bad things, and your nervous system is going through all. It sounds like my father. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds, we all have relatives like that. <laughs> Worst case scenario, always right. in mind. Right. And then, uh, of course, the six core pleasures are all the pleasures of the senses, the delights in seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. I like to have fresh flowers around. And it gives me great pleasure to look at things and to listen to music and to hear laughing children playing and smelling good things and tasting good food and touching the joy of touching a beloved human and silky things and also the sixth sense of imagination imagination is not just a mental pleasure but it's a an inner sensual pleasure as well we can stimulate sensual pleasure through our fantasy and how we hold back from the sensual pleasures are being in our heads constantly thinking 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 and not being in touch with our bodies at all and then the seventh core pleasure is the pleasure of sexuality, the pleasure of being interested in sex. That's a pleasure to be sexually interested. And it's a pleasure to uh, have desire and to be turned on, to be aroused, and to be in sexual contact with ourselves, not just with another. To have a sexual relationship with ourselves is so important. And to take that arousal to as, as aroused as you can be, to let go to that joyful, wonderful experience of being turned on in the body, in the pelvis, in the heart, in the mind, all over the body. And to release, to experience orgasm in whatever way we do. In whatever way we do, there are lots of different ways to have orgasm. And to even experience as a, a spiritual uh, experience. And then finally, the spirit to feel a part of something good that's larger than ourselves, to do good for others and see the benefits of of our own behaviors on somebody else's developing life and goodness, and to come to terms with our mortality, to have a sense of where we go from here that we can live with. That gives us courage, gives us faith. And, of course, the interesting thing about sex is that sex entails all of the other core pleasures. It is the pleasure of just being. It is the pleasure of pain relief and release. There's lots of evidence to show that sex, that sexual pleasure uh, releases pain. And it's full of the elemental pleasures of play and humor and laughter and movement and, and making good sounds and vocalized size and all of that and mentally mentally sex has to be stimulating or it's just going to be boring I mean we have to keep that fantasy alive and and that playfulness mental playfulness in sex and of course sex is best when uh, there's feelings in the heart of joy and love for the person that we're with even if it's ourselves as Woody Allen said masturbation is like having sex with someone I love <laughs> you know and um, and uh, the sensual part of sex is so important people leave that out people who have problems with sex uh, forget to kiss their partners uh, kissing is so basic and of course uh, sex can be quite a spiritual experience uh, for people who uh, are really connected together and and uh, can soar into space together. So those are the eight core pleasures. And um, It's a marvelous short course just to hear you go through the core pleasures, the resistance to them, and how they all can be expressed uh, through sex. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so back to the, the second part of that question, which is how... Do they mirror a developmental process of a human being? And how does that developmental process also show up in a human tribe or society? And, like, where are we developmentally as a species as you see it? Well, first of all, I love your questions. They're so right on. They're uh, so meaning and so meaningful. I really am thrilled to be able to respond to these questions. They really uh, 
challenged me to look at all of this because a lot of the stuff I've worked on in different realms, but to actually put this together in terms of how this corresponds to the development of society and a global society, I think, is so critical. We're so up against it now, Stella, right? We surely are. We surely are. And you're absolutely right. It's as though the globe is one giant human brain with all the different aspects of what we deal with internally manifest externally. And, of course, you know, as within, so without. And it's so clear if we really look at it. Now, one of the things that we know about human development that is so critical right now in the field of psychology and in the field of biology and the field of of infant development is what we know of as attachment. Now, attachment is a theory that started with a psychologist named John Baldy in England, and there was also research that he partnered with with a woman named Mary Ainsworth, and basically he said, you know, Freud studied childhood on the basis of the troubled adults that he was seeing. Let's actually study childhood by studying infants and children. And when they did, and they studied this cross-culturally from Uganda to Britain to the United States, um, what they saw was the importance of what they called secure attachment. That is, that when an infant is born, the most important thing is to have a loving, warm, intuitive mother. Not only to be able to anticipate her infant's needs, I say her, but um, there are many males gay males, for example, who adopt children who can also be mothers. So I use the common term she, but I really do believe that one of the developments of our society is the development of the non-gender-specific mother. A male or a female can be mother. But now looking at the warm, intuitive mother who can respond to her infant's needs and not only respond to her infant's needs, but at a particular point in the infant's development, uh, can be playful with the infant. So the infant gazes into the mother's eyes, and, and she responds with a warm smile and a kuchiku, and the infant looks away, and she uh, awaits his or her return. And when the infant looks back, she's there with another smile, and it becomes a game, and the infant laughs, and this is play. This is play, humor, movement, and sound. There it is. And that kind of development enables an infant to grow into a child who um, who can have faith that his or her needs will be responded to, who feels secure and safe, has a safe base uh, with the mother, can go exploring, and, and if there's any threat, can come back to the mother, and the mother is there, and... That's a secure kind of attachment. Well, you know, how many of us are really lucky enough to have that? Maybe we have it for a little while, you know, in infancy, but, you know, once the child starts to make noise and scream and be irritating and there are all sorts of things that happen and there are all sorts of pain and unfulfilled expectation and uh, limitations in our own parents. Now, what is actually taking place in this interaction is that the brain and the nervous system are being shaped. That's what makes early childhood so tenacious, is that these are the tracks that are laid down that all other behaviors and beliefs and expectations are based on. Because we're basically, you know, the common look of the brain with all the furrows and ruts in it, that's only in an adult Brain. An infant brain is relatively smooth. There are no big crevices. We've got lots of potential. But what is actualized are those neurons that fire, that, that become linked with one another. So the brain and nervous system are being laid down. So what is this telling us? It's telling us that infancy and childhood are critical critical in whether or not we develop into people who have faith and hope and positive expectations or if we become people who are needy and clinging and, and avoidant and, 
and unattached and afraid and afraid to be expressive. And basically what is conditioned up is an inability to deal with stress. So this is what we are up against as a society. As a society, we really do need to make things good for children. We really do need to uh, rescue uh, children uh, from unloving backgrounds. Now, we can't take away everybody, but we can certainly infuse them with more positive. You know, everybody who comes from a difficult childhood like myself, I came from a a very painful childhood, and um, I wrote a little bit about it in my book, The Pleasure Zone, and I will continue to write it because it has set an example for me. But very frequently, there's a single figure who comes to the fore, who provides a child with another view of how things can be, with another sense of oneself, uh, mirroring the, what's good about you rather than what's bad about you. And, and we do need that. We need to be good to the children. And we really need to understand what children need. And one of those areas, I believe, that's really critical is in the area of sex and pleasure. You're listening to Living Hero at livinghero.com. I'm Jari Chevalier, and I'm in conversation today with sex and pleasure expert Stella Resnick. To be able to encourage children to be who they truly are without having to uh, inhibit themselves, to learn how to contain their energy and use it rather than suppress it and misuse it and punish themselves. So I think, you know, one major aspect of the development of the human tribe uh, and a global society is to help the children, to feed them not just to make sure they're not physically starving, but to feed them good energy, positive thoughts, positive expectations, support, support. We have to support children. We have to support people in order to get the maximum out of them for for the good of society. We need to help them to be who they truly are. My neurons are firing so fast based on everything that you're saying. I just I'm jumping out of my skin because I think it's so important what you're saying and it seems that this is the the taboo, it's the unspoken but most needed thing that a society would actually become involved with the question, are you ready to have children? What would it be to be ready to have children? It's just like this inalienable right that you can get pregnant, you can have children, you can raise them any way you want, and then the society is going to deal with that. One important aspect of this is that uh, biologically we have separated sex from reproduction. That's really important. Biologically, we have separated sex from reproduction. So uh, we know... What do you mean uh, by that? You mean birth control solutions? Number one, having birth control solutions. Um, So we can um, prevent unwanted pregnancy. We can prevent unwanted pregnancy, number one, uh, which is a, a critical issue of sexual health. Uh, you know, the, the new understanding with regard to sexuality in the field of sexology, the study, the scientific study of sexuality, in the field of sexology, in the field of sex therapy, uh, uh, a major, major understanding is that there is, number one, a lot of sexual diversity. There are a lot of different ways to express sexuality. Um, Number two, that um, that sex is different from reproduction. That that infants are born sexual. We know little boy babies have erections in the womb. We know little girl babies uh, lubricate around at least by three days of age. Um, what does that say? That says that the sexual system is intact before the reproductive system is intact, which doesn't come online until puberty. So there's all that time of being sexual before we are reproductive. So that's another aspect of that. We know that parents absolutely absent themselves 
from giving guidance to their children sexually. Absolutely absent themselves. They can be intrusive in other, every other area of a child's life and absent in one of the most critical aspects of a child's life. So a child is forced to learn about sex at the age of nine from another nine-year-old, generally a nine-year-old who has an older brother or sister. Um, that is one of the ways I believe that we sexually abuse children is we give them no information at all. And then then the only information we give them is about reproduction, Mm -hmm. which is about making babies. And before we can make babies, we need to be able to come to terms with our sexuality. Sexuality among primates, that means humans, gorillas, apes, chimpanzees, (laughs) you know, our species, all have to learn how to be sexual. We all have to, monkeys, if they are not taught how to be sexual, they are incapable, incapable of coitus. They are incapable of having reproductive sex if they don't know how to be playful at sex. The young of all mammals play as a precursor to uh, hunting and as a precursor to being sexual. And it is in among humans where juvenile sex play is seen as abnormal. That if a child shows any interest in sex, he must have been abused. Well, well anyway. I was going to ask you, and I think this is related to what you just said, um, but I'm still sort of holding on to this idea of healthy and unhealthy attachment. But my next question is really about why are we so stuck? I mean, if it's a developmental process following the eight core pleasures and the development, in the way that our bodies, we can't really stop the development of our bodies. We can't say, don't age. We can't say, don't go through puberty, right? It's going to happen. So on this more psychological level, how can we hold back our development? What is it that gets us so stuck? One of the things uh, that we do also know about how we learn to be human is that there are certain critical periods. And if certain learning doesn't take place during certain critical periods when it's the easiest and it's most natural to be learned, it's more difficult. We can go back. Um, Somebody once said it's never too late to have a happy childhood. And, in fact, that's true. We can go back. But the point is that we've been programmed this way. It means that we have a neural network in our brains that are conditioned to fire in a particular pattern, uh, which are uh, essentially habits. And these patterns are also in our nervous system so that we learn to uh, get tense and to hold ourselves in and to hold our breath rather than to let go and to allow ourselves to be in balance. So in order to actually retrain ourselves, it really is that. It's a retraining. And the essential part is to have the courage to let go. And it's not an easy thing to do because, as we said earlier, it's understandable that people would fear letting go because there's a lack of familiarity uh, with letting go and letting be. And, you know, we're stuck in some of these critical periods that, that we need to go back and to be re-nourished in some critical ways, which essentially uh, for a lot of us is letting go in the body, being able to relax, breathe, stretch, uh, exercise, put things into the body that are nurturing and help us to grow and, and to feel good rather than to be medicating ourselves. You know, we medicate ourselves a lot, so... It's so sad that so many people spend the greater part of their adult lives just trying to sort of go back and heal and take care of things that could have been laid down as a matter of course in their childhood. It's sad, isn't it? I mean, where could we be? You know, this may be the natural evolution of things. Uh, Well, you know, not only maybe, I mean, this is the reality of the situation. So, so facto, (laughs) it is uh, the reality. And so this is where we find ourselves. And evolution uh, didn't just stop 10,000 years ago, but it is continuing on. And uh, every place where you see revolution, 
is an evolution. And we had a sexual revolution that started, you know, perhaps in the 60s or before. And once the hoopla has died down, uh, it has released an energy that's continually evolving. So we are continually evolving. And the important thing is to recognize that sometimes when you're ready to let go of stuck places, one of the things that you will feel is the pain that you repressed, that you sat on. But, you know, there's a different feeling when you are releasing the pain from when you are pushing it down and holding on to it. So it does, it takes having somebody to help. It takes a guide. It takes uh, a therapist. It definitely does take a sense of being connected to somebody who can help. Couples can help each other. The research shows that when couples get together, if an insecure partner is in a relationship with a secure partner, and they're able to work through that, an insecure partner can become secure within about five years of being together. So you may go through five years of Sturm und Drang, um, but then um, there's a release and a sense of safety that may happen. Now, sometimes you have two insecure people together. So where is that security going to come from? It's going to come from an effective, warm, intuitive therapist who can help these people not just work as a team together to heal each other, uh, but also learn to take pleasure in one another and enjoy each other and have you know, good sex together because, you know, sex is a core aspect of what we have learned to repress. And it's important to learn to be in touch with that sexual creative energy, that ability to be aroused and energized and pleasured all at the same time. And I think loving couples can be an important part of this whole evolutionary process. I would like very much to come back around and talk more about sex in just a little while, but I don't want to forget, I want us to just take a look at something together, and that is a couple of different concepts of discipline that you mention in your book. And I had a question about it. In one sense, discipline means following a particular pathway, you know, going down a particular road, following a particular guide or leader, and generally speaking, we think of discipline as some form of restraining ourselves, holding ourselves to that line. So one thing I'm thinking about, what is our discipline in this society? What are we currently followers of? And I want to keep that on the side and just look at the second piece of what discipline is, which is what you're talking about, this discipline of letting go, that there's a skill to it, a road to follow there, too, the skill of being able to release, let down, be able to say, I'm sorry, surrender sometimes. So can you speak at all to these two different pathways of discipline and your view? Well, first of all, um, the kind of, when we think of, Often when people think of discipline, what they're thinking of is uh, discipline that is imposed by someone in power that forces you to constrain and restrain yourself. Or the discipline of the good book or, or the commandments or something that of is... doing something that you don't want to do. So there is already a sense of uh, a resistance. And so anything that you're going to do, you're going to do by pushing against the resistance, which is resisting the resistance. So there's stress and strain that goes along with that notion of discipline. So the other kind of discipline that we're looking at, where discipline is a, a path to follow, a set of skills to learn, a way of training yourself that involves being able to let go and at the same time be able to do what it is that you want to do so that you're, you're not just going to let go and fall to the ground and lay there. I mean, you're letting go for something. You're letting go of something in order to build something else. And it's not something that's forced upon you, but it's something that you do willingly. It's something that you 
not just do willingly, but you do easily. So are we saying that that kind of discipline requires a certain amount of understanding of what you're doing this for in the first place? Yes. You absolutely need to know what you're doing this for. You need to have a goal. I like to say to people all the time in California here, we're in Los Angeles, I say, listen, if you're going to get on a bus, you need to know if you're going to go to San Francisco or San Diego. San Francisco is north. San Diego is south. You can't get on a bus until you know where you're going and what it is that you are practicing to get there. And is it moving you in the right direction? And the reason I say you want to be able to do it eagerly is because you need energy. And eagerness, it, uh, enthusiasm is where the energy comes from. So, so it's a path that you are choosing um, to grow yourself, to grow yourself, to heal yourself, to be a happy, healthy, awake, alive, energetic, productive human being, effective human being, to do what, what it is that you want to do with this prize, this time that we have on this planet. That's a big part of it. And if we have a lot of resistance, it's harder because the resistance is becoming to an authority. It could be, you know, a cruel authority in terms of the original resistance that was built up, the original pain of suppressing oneself. Everything that you're imparting, that you're giving to us, leads us and the listeners to look at what is it we are currently followers of? What is our discipline? What are we disciples of? And perhaps look at that more consciously. What is it that you're lending your energy to? How are you contributing? What are you acquiring? Is it simply material, or is there something more that you are leaving behind you uh, as you move along? So back to sex, because I think people really want to hear as much as you can tell us about your expertise in this area. What does true mind-body-spirit sexual health look like? What is it that you are moving your clients towards as you envision really helping them reach their sexual potential? The important thing about sex, first of all, is that you don't do anything you don't want to do. That you feel you're true to yourself sexually. I think that's really important. And since that is so important, it is often a way in which people betray themselves. Because people don't only have sex for pleasure. People have sex for reassurance. They have sex to fulfill an obligation. They have sex to prove themselves, to get out of a bad situation. I mean, there are lots of different reasons that people have sex to, to fulfill their duty as a husband or a wife. It can be a form um, of currency. Yes, a form of currency. And then, of course, sex has been forced on some people, and they have wounds on an emotional, uh, at least, and perhaps sexual basis as well. So... It's understandable then for people who have been abused, and as I said earlier, in many ways, everybody's been somewhat abused in our society sexually uh, from the lack of information, the lack of guidance, the inadequate teaching. There's a cartoon that was in the paper on Sunday that uh, I cut out. A little girl sitting on a couch, and her father is standing above her, and the mother is in the doorway, and he says, I don't know what you've heard in kindergarten, but I can tell you there is no such thing as sex. And I thought, wow, it's telling the truth about how parents lie to their children about sex. And it's happening all the time, even among kids that were born after the supposed sexual revolution. I have people who come in who've got no guidance with regard to their sexuality. So there's a lot of guilt and shame around sex against being too exuberant and too expressive and enjoying it too much. And so if you look at sexuality as going through a critical period during childhood, that was a critical period that was often not really reinforced that children were ill-equipped to deal with. So here we are now in a position where people as adults need to relearn how to be sexual because they didn't get it during the critical period in their childhood. They didn't learn, you know, how to express their sexuality without repressing it and without 
um, you, you know, and still be uh, sociable and not do it in front of people and all of that. But a lot of people just learn to hide it and to be ashamed of it. You know, I supervise therapists, and I have a therapist who is uh, in supervision with me who has a client who believes that she will go to hell because she has masturbated. She feels that very strongly, that she will burn in hell. And yet, you know, she finds herself masturbating and can't really stop herself. So that's difficult, you know, when people think that this is shameful behavior. Shameful behavior for masturbating or men who masturbate. You know, a lot of men learn to be sexual by looking at sexually explicit photographs in magazines. What happens when men grow up and they've been inhibited in many ways to uh, explore their sexuality and, and still that's the way they know to be sexual is through sexually explicit materials. So they've graduated to the Internet. But it all comes from a basic lack of uh, ability to uh, experience and express one's sexuality with a partner. Stella, what do you think our sexuality is an expression of? Creativity, love, happiness, pleasure, excitement, enthusiasm, relaxation, respect for the body, just to name a few things. So in a society where the vast majority of people are really not on a higher development track, doesn't it get more and more difficult to those who are to find an appropriate partner to express all this? I don't think it's easy for anyone because we're looking for so much from a partner. Well, you say it's so nice to have the emotional part involved, and many people go through a whole lifetime without really finding that love of well, their life. Well, you know, this is actually the next book that I'm writing now that I've just sold, Looking at Love and Desire. That was yeah. my next question to you about what are you working on now, yeah. so if you can segue into that, um, because we're getting close to the end of our time anyway. Yeah. Well, I, I've um, just sold my new, my next book. And Congratulations. Just, thank you, and I'm looking forward to finishing yet it's already been started and it is essentially about healing this separation that we've had between our emotional loving and the ability to express ourselves sexually does this book have a title yet well companies often change them but the title that i sold this book under is dilemmas of love and desire bridging the gap between heart and libido Mm -hmm. nice and it really is about the difficulty that we've had to express our sexual feelings in the presence of our loving feelings and why that should be so. But, you know, nowadays we want so much more partners. We want somebody who is tall, dark, and handsome, beautiful, shapely, pretty, thin, skinny, big breasts, Great and bad, economically independent, somebody who is going to be a good mother or a good father and all of these different qualities. And then we have all these fantasies of what they should be, that the person that they're with isn't quite good enough, that there's somebody else that they should hold out for having it all. You know, all of that, uh, thinking that what we're going to acquire in a partner is a fully formed human being who's already there and we don't have to participate in their further growth and development. And I believe that we do have to participate in their growth and development and that we can't do it by making them feel bad about themselves. So how do we go about choosing someone to be with who has the basic ability to be loving? I think that's the basic ability. The basic ability to be loving and respectful and funny. <laughs> so funny. I think humor is a very important part of being able to work things out and not take yourself too seriously. And to start with, to be able to be with people in a relaxed and pleasurable way, not to have to be on our best behavior, not to think that we have to entice this person into uh, recognizing us, but uh, to be able to be with somebody and be comfortable with them and to be willing to be there and to help support them in being all that they can be and to have somebody who's going to support you in your growth and development and 
to recognize that a relationship is a work in progress, just like a human being is, and to maybe not be so overly selective that it has to be somebody who's got everything, that, that maybe we can explore being with people who are contrary to type. You know, when I chose my husband, or well, I didn't know I was choosing my husband, I just thought I was saying yes to a date with somebody who really wasn't my type. <laughs> and um, and he continued to not be my type for quite a while, and then suddenly I was madly in love with him. And it really called into question the whole notion of type. Sometimes what's important is to go against type and to see who can I love? Who can I love who can love me? Who can be fun? Who can be my friend? Who can I be sexual with? Who can I be turned on to? Stella, is there anything else that you would have our listeners thinking about as we wind up the program? Well, I would say this. First of all, I want to give my website, which is www.drstellaresnick.com, and it's D-R-S-T-E-L-L-A-R-E-S-N-I-C-K, one word, drstellaresnick.com. And you'll be able to read some of how I tied some of this together further. You do workshops sometimes. I have a workshop coming up at Esalen Institute, seminar I'm doing with my husband, Alan Kishbaugh, and it's August 16th to 21st. It's a five-day workshop at Esalen, uh, Sunday to Friday. And then, uh, except for a class I'm teaching at UCLA Extension in uh, October, I'm not going to be doing any workshops until the book is finished, and at that point I will, you know, accept invitations. But the one other thing that I would encourage is to practice conscious breathing. And this is what I would recommend. If you will do this exercise six times a day for ten seconds at a time, and all it is is taking a deep breath in through the nose, blow out through the mouth, all the way down to the bottom of the breath, and take a deep sigh. You do that six times a day for ten seconds at a time, it will take less than a minute of your day, and it will change your life for the better. And I guarantee that. Thank you so much, Dr. Stella Resnick. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. 